Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is Heroes of the Great Hunger, Famine Aid in the 1840s. So much of the history of the Great Hunger are stories rooted in greed, racism and senseless suffering. However, this episode recounts some of the amazing stories of compassion and solidarity that took place during some of the darkest years of our past. When talking about the Great Famine, It's hard not to focus on the disastrous policies of the British government, but it is also important to remember the people who became what were for me some of the forgotten heroes of the Great Famine, the Victorian equivalent of aid workers. This podcast brings you the story of some of these unlikely heroes, from a Polish count to an evangelical Protestant from Vermont in the USA. But before I begin, I also want to take a moment to thank the patrons of the show. This episode proved extremely difficult to make. In the end, it took three complete rewrites of the script to get it right. Without the support of patrons, this would have taken months or else I would have had to release a podcast neither I nor you, the listener, would have been happy with. So I want to thank the patrons for their patience and support in making this show. Patrons also get a shout out in the show and this week I want to thank Fiona Kjallakon, A Letter from Ireland, Fran McNally, Greg McLaughlin, Hayley McEll, Heidi Lewis, Jack, Ulysses 3000, Uncle Butter, Verity Kindle, Eamon Riley and Ethan Nathan. Just before we get into today's episode I want to acknowledge a key source I used. This episode relies heavily on Christine Keneally's 2013 book Charity and the Great Hunger in Ireland, The Kindness of Strangers, and I would really recommend it if you want to read more on this issue. And finally, I want to say thanks to Olga Jezhenitska for helping with the Polish pronunciations, and also a happy birthday to Marcus, who is one today. In late January 1847, the Polish Count, Paul Strzelecki, landed in Dublin for the first time in his life. He was surely an unexpected figure. Having never visited Ireland before, Strzelecki could not have chosen a worst moment to land in Dublin. 
Over the previous three months, the Great Famine had morphed from a major crisis into a catastrophe of unparalleled proportions. Thousands were dying across the country and there was no end in sight. While few expected tourists in this hour of desperation, when Streletsky told people of his plans for his visit to Ireland, Dubliners surely responded with looks of admiration but also a tinge of disbelief. This Polish aristocrat had volunteered to act as agent for the newly founded British Relief Association in the counties of Mayo, Sligo and Donegal. The association was a charity established to aid those affected by famine in Ireland and the highlands of Scotland and while it was able to garner large resources in London, it needed people like Streletsky to travel to Ireland in order to put this money to good use. Heroic as his endeavours were, Streletsky's actions are still, even with a distance of 170 years, difficult to comprehend. Here was a person with no connection to Ireland, having never set foot in the country before, and now he was volunteering not only to come to the country and help with famine relief, but also travel to the most dangerous parts of the island to coordinate the work in Mayo, Sligo and Donegal. On arriving in Dublin, Streletsky didn't have to look far to see how dangerous the work that lay ahead of him was. In the cold, wintry streets of the capital city in early 1847, he could have found any number of people who could have told him how dangerous the west of Ireland was. The numbers of famine refugees reaching the capital was growing with each passing day and each one of these people had their own story of the horrors that awaited this Polish count in the west. However, dangerous as it was, there were few people who had the life experience Streletsky did to draw on. He was as prepared for such a mission as anyone could be. Aged 49, he had been born back in the late 1790s into an aristocratic family from Guszyna near Poznan, which until 1792 had been part of the Kingdom of Poland before it had been dismembered by surrounding powers. In the early years of the 19th century, Powell, still a young man, left Guszyna after becoming embroiled in a legal dispute over his family estates. After leaving his homeland, he would never return. By the early 1830s, Strelitsky was living in England, which would in time become his adoptive home. He did leave for an extended period of time, however, in 1834, to embark on what would become a nine-year journey around the world, during which he gained fame, if not fortune. While he visited all continents save Antarctica, it was when he reached Australia in 1839 that he would leave his mark on history. There he participated and led several journeys of exploration. This was a time when the British were colonising the continent and much of the interior was entirely unknown to Europeans. This saw Streletsky traverse parts of the Great Dividing Range where no European had set foot before. Indeed today there are numerous places in Australia named in his honour while he himself named Australia's highest peak after the Polish national hero Tadeusz Kosciuszka. Back in England by 1843, he set about publishing an extensive account of his time in Australia and Tasmania in the originally titled A Physical Description of New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land. This book, published in 1845, brought attention to his travels, but also revealed Streletsky to be a very different man from his contemporaries. In his writing, he revealed a genuine concern for native peoples across the world who he realised were being exterminated after the arrival of white Europeans. 
In what was a very radical idea of the day, he advocated the British should stop trying to quote-unquote civilise indigenous peoples because he could see the process was killing them. Sadly, he was ignored. However, this concern for his fellow humans perhaps goes a long way to explain why he had arrived in Ireland in 1847. Strzelecki did not wait long in Dublin after arriving in Ireland. Instead, after a few meetings in the capital, he insisted on heading out west to begin his work as agent for the British Relief Association. However, he could scarcely have chosen a worse time to travel. Early 1847 saw the famine enter a particularly dangerous phase. As the population starved, society was breaking down. People were doing what they had to in order to survive. Crimes of all kinds were on the increase. Offences against the person had increased by over 13% in 1846, homicide by 28%. Further to this, the dangers posed by typhus, typhoid and dysentery posed even greater risks. To make matters even more dangerous, Ireland was experiencing some of the worst weather in living memory, making the already limited transport infrastructure almost impassable. Nevertheless, in what must have been reminiscent of his days exploring the mountain ranges of New South Wales, Strzelecki set off in February. Persevering through some of the heaviest snowfalls of the decade, he nevertheless did not stop to rest or wait out the bad weather. When his carriage was blocked by snow and ice, he got out and continued on foot, illustrating the genuine commitment he had towards helping the desperate in Ireland, a fact reinforced by his later refusal to accept any payment for his efforts. On reaching the northwest, Strzelecki began to oversee relief efforts on behalf of the British Association, often working alongside other agencies. The man's energy was tireless. Within a few weeks of arriving, he had dispersed over 1,000 bags of rice and nearly 2,000 barrels of Indian meal. He also organised the distribution of 30 bales of clothing, which was in much need. While we associate the Great Famine with a food crisis, by 1847 it was impacting every aspect of life. Many of the poor by this stage had pawned their clothes to buy food and the shocking weather of early 1847 now posed an almost equal risk to their health than starvation as they were literally naked in the freezing conditions. This work was very much appreciated by people at the time. The Archbishop of Tume would write to the Freeman's Journal in June of 1847 saying, and I quote, It was gratifying that in Westport, much of the evil so intensely felt elsewhere was being mitigated by the benevolent exertions of the Polish Count. Nevertheless, while Strzelecki may have been a well-travelled man, nothing could prepare him for what he encountered during his work. He would write back to his superiors in the British Relief Association, No pen can describe the distress by which I am surrounded. It has already reached such a degree of lamentable extremes that it becomes above the power of exaggeration and misrepresentation. You may now believe anything which you hear and read because what I see surpasses whatever I have read of past and present calamities. Working in such an environment surrounded by such misery posed grave dangers to his health, particularly since disease was rampant and in April, scarcely two months after he arrived in the West, Strzelecki was struck down by disease, although he, unlike many of the starving people, was able to survive. He would attribute this to having already contracted numerous diseases during his days as an explorer. While his story is inspiring, Strzelecki was just one of several similar figures doing voluntary work in Ireland at this point. His unusual background and experience is in fact indicative 
that these individuals shared very little in common other than a genuine concern for the starving poor. They came from all sorts of backgrounds. Other agents for the British Relief Association included James Butler, the younger brother of the Marcus of Ormond, one of Ireland's wealthiest aristocrats. Meanwhile, Matthew Higgins was the son of a small Irish landlord, but he did have his own estates in British Guyana. He was a well-known writer and journalist. While Butler and Higgins had clear connections to Ireland, this wasn't always the case. Another aristocratic agent for the British Relief Association was Lord Robert Clinton, the 12th son of the Duke of Newcastle from the north of England, a man who had no direct connection to Ireland. Now, while it's tempting to point out that these people came from backgrounds of great privilege and they could well afford to do this work, this doesn't really appreciate their actions. Furthermore, the reality was they could have easily assuaged their consciences by giving a few hundred pounds or in the case of Clinton and Streletsky of doing nothing at all and no one would have expected them to. The work they were doing also came at a great personal cost to them. For example, I have little doubt the horrors they experienced probably haunted them for the rest of their lives. Matthew Higgins had one of the most difficult postings, being stationed in Belmont in County Mayo, where he carried out his duties for free, despite being offered payment. Now, in previous episodes, I have covered the situation in Eris, where Belmont is located. But in short, it was a heavily populated region, but also extremely remote. Belmont itself was situated 50 miles from the local workhouse. The land was poor and the people were utterly desperate for aid by early 1847. Now, in April of 1847, Higgins wrote a detailed letter to the Times of London, to whom he had been a regular correspondent under the pseudonym Jacob Omnium. In this report, he presented a blunt and brutal account of the conditions he was working in in this isolated town in the northwest corner of County Mayo. The following passage gives some sense of what he was dealing with. Higgins was clearly traumatised. The letter detailed accounts of people collapsing in the streets and mothers carrying babies who had died a few days previously in the hope that the sorry scene would invoke charity from others. But it was after describing some other horrors in the town, he detailed the following account, which I think of everything I've read from the Great Famine moved me more than anything else. These are Higgins' words. Lest I may be suspected of caricature or exaggeration, I will in conclusion set down what my eyes have seen during the last half an hour. I have seen in the courthouse an inquest holding on the body of a boy of 13 who being left alone in a cabin with a little rice and fish in his charge was murdered by his cousin, a boy of 12, for the sake of that wretched pittance of food. A verdict of willful murder has since been returned. The culprit is the most famished and sickly creature I ever saw and his relatives, whom I heard examined, were all equally emaciated and fever-stricken. While this surely haunted Higgins for the rest of his life, he and the other agents of the British Relief Association, Streletsky, Clinton and Butler, unquestionably made a huge difference in distributing supplies. They also helped to reorganise what were often dysfunctional local relief organisations. For example, when Higgins arrived in Belmullet, he found the town had six clerics, three Protestants and three Catholics. Now in many areas, clerics formed the backbone of local relief organisations but Higgins found the six in Belmullet to be utterly useless. Of the Protestants, he said, one was insane, while the other two refused to speak or help each other in distributing aid. The Catholics, he said, were good but simple men who had little influence over their communities. 
This hamstrung relief effort, indeed, even though the British Relief Association had already sent over £100 to Belmullet, Higgins discovered it hadn't been spent because the Protestant vicar and curate who controlled it had fallen out. The intervention of these agents, coming when it did in the spring and early summer of 1847, was crucial. Their spearheading of the efforts of the British Relief Association took place as the British government's own relief strategy was falling apart. In the early months of 1847, having accepted that their policy of public works to provide money to the poor to buy food was a disaster, the government switched to a policy of soup kitchens. However, this had been done in an arbitrary fashion and in many areas the public works closed before soup kitchens opened and this left people without any aid whatsoever. In many communities, it was the British Relief Association who stepped into the breach at this desperate hour. Now, while they definitely saved lives, this was a reflection perhaps of an overly close relationship between the British Relief Association and the British government. This has left the association, which I'll cover in greater detail later in the show, open to criticism that it did not pursue its own strategy for famine relief. Instead, some have convincingly argued that they were constantly firefighting the failures of the disastrous government approach. There is no doubt that through 1847, Charles Trevelyan, the chief civil servant in the Treasury, was able to exert huge influence over the association and its activities. By the summer of 1847, the British government had, however, successfully rolled out soup kitchens across the island, and the crisis eased temporarily at least. This allowed agents of the association across the West to wind down their efforts for the summer months at least. Higgins, Butler and Clinton were able to return to their normal lives, while Strelitzky moved to Dublin to organise efforts for the coming winter. While these four worked for the British Relief Association, which was by far and away the largest operation in Ireland during the 1840s, there were several other major private relief organisations which I want to look at next. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. 
At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Of the charitable organisations operating in Ireland during the famine, the most famous was the Society of Friends, or as they are often called, the Quakers. Even though there was only 3,000 Quakers living in Ireland in the 1840s, they, through the support of their fellow Congregationalists in Britain and the USA, organised the second largest private relief effort in Ireland. Through their Central Relief Committee, formed in November 1846 and based in Dublin, they coordinated the activities of numerous other Quaker committees that had already been established across Ireland. A central figure in this was actually the famous Dublin coffee merchant, Joseph Bewley. The Quakers raised large amounts of money in Ireland, but also through the support of other Quakers living in Britain and the USA, they could tap into huge resources. Through the course of the Great Famine, they raised somewhere in the region of £200,000. They were also helped on the ground in Ireland by Quakers who arrived from Britain and America. Prominent among these was the Yorkshireman James Hachuk, who toured the west of Ireland on two occasions in 1846 and 1847, often performing similar duties to those of the agents of the British Relief Association. He also provided crucial eyewitness accounts which helped raise donations which were essential to continue their activities. The Quakers, it should be said, also had what would be considered a more modern approach to famine relief in that they tried to encourage solutions that would improve the self-sufficiency of the people rather than leaving them perpetually dependent on outside aid. An example of this was James Hachuk when he visited Ackle Island and found a truly heartbreaking situation. His words were, Standing on the magnificent cliffs of Ackle, we saw deep inlets and bays filled with shoals of mackerel and herring. The whole surface of the sea seemed completely alive with them. Around us an inexhaustible supply of food, but the people were wholly unable to procure it to allay their cravings. The problem lay in the fact that the poor in many cases had sold or pawned their fishing equipment to buy food. However, James Hackchuk and the Quakers were able to secure a loan for Ackle to buy a small fleet of corks, their small boats suited to inshore fishing. They also provided resources to build a curing station on the island and this allowed excess fish to be preserved and then sold at markets on the mainland. In terms of provisions, the Quakers also provided extremely practical items that the British government would not provide. This included blankets, clothing and medicine. Their efforts though came at a terrible price and at least 13 Quakers died from disease or exhaustion during the Great Famine. Alongside these major large-scale relief efforts of the British Relief Association and the Quakers Central Relief Committee, there were also small-scale operations. Perhaps the most famous of these was organised by a woman called Asenet Nicholson. Nicholson, who was a native of Vermont, was somewhat like Streletsky in that she had no ancestral connection to Ireland. That said, she had been deeply moved by her experience of tending to Irish emigrants struck down by cholera in New York during the 1832 epidemic. After this, she had visited Ireland in 1844 and then she returned in late 1846 to launch her own relief operation. Rather than link in with the major organisations like the British Relief Association, Nicholson preferred to operate a small-scale effort 
which had perhaps a more tangible impact, albeit on a smaller scale. It's her eyewitness accounts that form the basis of the current Patrons podcast that's available for show patrons who have signed up at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Now, while Nicholson herself preferred to work on her own, she was by no means sectarian and commended the efforts of all other agencies. She did, however, criticise one operation, and this was the most controversial charitable works of the Great Famine, which revealed that there can be a dark side to famine relief. This brings us on to the somewhat infamous Ackle Mission. The Ackle Mission was a Protestant colony established in 1834 on Ackle Island, which is located in the Atlantic Ocean a few hundred metres off the coast of County Mayo. The mission was founded by Edward Nangle, who aimed to convert the island's Catholic population to Protestantism. In the years after its inception, the mission was nothing short of a total disaster. Not only did Nangle struggle to convert the islanders, but in his first few years, he and his fellow missionaries were attacked on several occasions. Things changed in the aftermath of the failure of the potato crop, however. Nangle interpreted the onset of famine through his extreme religious views, which led him to believe that it was actually a punishment of a vengeful God who was angry at the British government's agreement with the Catholic Church in 1845, which saw the government fund seminaries to train priests. For Nangle, the Catholic Church was evil, so the government helping them was nothing short of a major sin. As hunger set in across Ackle, Nangle was in a strong position to organise relief works on the island as he had access to large amounts of money. However, given his views that Catholicism was at the root of the famine, he leveraged his food stocks to secure conversions among the islanders, forcing them to switch from Catholicism to Protestantism. It was hardly any surprise, given the islanders were starving, that he enjoyed considerable successes. Indeed, in later life, Nangle would admit, and I quote, had it not been for the famine of 47, the mission in Ackle would have been a failure. Such actions, dubbed superism in Ireland, that's conversions in return for soup, were considered to be absolutely notorious. Nangle was widely criticised for this, not only by the Catholic Archbishop of Toome, John McHale, but also, as I mentioned earlier, by Asenetha Nicholson, herself a radical Protestant, but who considered such behaviour reprehensible. However, it should be said, while Nangle engaged in superism, this was not as common as it has been portrayed since the Great Famine. Most relief workers were decent people, motivated by genuine concerns. Ultimately, Edward Nangle's influence was limited to the shores of Ackle Island. However, other religious groups had much greater influence. The Catholic Church, for example, was an enormous organisation covering the entire country. However, as Christine Keneally has pointed out, their overall role is very difficult to assess due to the unusual nature of their relief efforts. They were involved from the earliest days on the ground in their local communities. However, as an organisation, the situation is more complex. There's no question that the Catholic Church raised very large amounts of money. The Vatican led the way by organising donations to the tune of tens of thousands of pounds. However, because the Catholic Church did not set up its own specific relief organisation or funnel its funds through the British Relief Association, we don't actually know how much was raised or where it was spent as they used pre-existing networks of priests to spend the money. This doesn't mean there's anything nefarious in this, just that their precise role, which was considerable, is very difficult to determine. 
Now next, I'm going to look at where the money used by these various different relief agencies came from because the narrative often told is inaccurate. As we are about to see, a very large proportion actually came from England, but this was not without its own controversies. First though, I want to take a quick break and tell you about my new podcast series where you can find even more shows about Irish history. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in. If you're enjoying this show, I also have another series which launched recently called This Week in Irish History. Episodes there are released each week and are much shorter than this show and cover a range of topics. So far, there have been episodes on an Irish highwayman executed in 1750, the first royal visit to Ireland, that's from 1171. There's two episodes on the Irish revolutionary Muriel McSweeney and then a show on an Irish mutiny in the British Army in India during the Irish War of Independence. You can find all these by simply searching for This Week in Irish History wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's get back to the show. Through 1847, Paul Strzelecki, Asenet Nicholson and the other relief agents across Ireland were spending the equivalent of tens of millions of euros They could only do this because of the generosity of thousands of individual donors across the world. And in the 1840s, the collection of this money was a remarkable feat, given, as I say, it was coming from all corners of the globe. However, the fact that tens of millions was raised is remarkable, not just because of the limitations of 19th century communications, but also because there were other major obstacles, not least among them, virulent racism towards Irish people common in Britain, and bizarrely enough, an ideological opposition to giving charity in general. Nevertheless, as we are about to see, mass fundraising efforts were launched in the 1840s that in many ways echo modern fundraising in unexpected ways in terms of scale and size. To understand this, I have focused on one organisation who raised the most amount of money, but who have almost been entirely forgotten in terms of famine history. This is the British Relief Association, for whom Count Strzelecki worked as an agent. The British Relief Association had been formed in London on January 1st, 1847, in the offices of Lionel de Rothschild, the senior partner in the well-known de Rothschilds Bank. It was established to help the starving in Ireland and also the highlands of Scotland, although over 80% of its resources were spent in Ireland, where the famine was far more acute. The men who gathered in de Rothschilds Bank were highly influential figures from the London banking and mercantile community and within days they had collected a total of £8,000 from eight wealthy individuals with Lionel de Rothschild himself leading the way. With each person giving £1,000 this was a considerable amount of money perhaps as much as £100,000 in contemporary currency. Given their status in society the British Relief Association quickly received support from leading figures in wider society. Queen Victoria herself led the way, giving the association a donation of £2,000, followed by several members of her extended household who collectively gave around £3,200. Queen Victoria's donation has been the source of much controversy and myth since the 1840s. It's frequently asserted that she only gave £5, which is untrue. However, her donation of £2,000 set what would become a cap on what others could give, as anything that exceeded this would be considered a breach of protocol. Therefore, when the Sultan Abdul Majid Khan of the Ottoman Empire decided to give £10,000, 
British officials in Constantinople intervened to stop him by pointing out Victoria had given substantially less. In the end, to avoid embarrassing the Queen, the Sultan ultimately gave £1,000. However, even in his case, this remarkable generosity was not just an act of kindness, but was an indication of the complex reasons why many people give to charities. When the Sultan gave his donation, the Ottoman Empire was in rapid decline. It had been famously labelled the sick man of Europe and the Russians to their north were poised to attack in the hope of hiving off a large chunk of their territory, possibly even Constantinople itself. The Sultan desperately needed allies and was on a charm offensive in the West, hoping to secure the support of the United Kingdom. Giving famine relief to Ireland should be seen in this context. He was trying to impress the Western European leaders. Now, while heads of state like Victoria and the Sultan were among the most famous donors, their combined contributions were still only a minority of what the British Relief Association received. While it's impossible to cover all the individual contributions, among the most important were those collected during what was a pretty remarkable event, in many ways a forerunner to the 1980s Live Aid concerts, complete with all the extremely problematic stereotyping that went with them. While the Live Aid concerts raised over $100 million for famine relief in the 1980s, when the Victorians went about organising a mass fundraising event, it took a very different shape altogether. Rather than have something fun and enjoyable, they organised what was called a day of general fast and humiliation. It was organised through the Church of England and the day itself, Wednesday, March the 24th, 1847, was to be treated like a holy day. Across much of Britain, factories fell silent, as did the hustle and bustle of daily life. Even the symbolic centre of the British economy, the London Stock Exchange, closed for the day. People were encouraged to pray for the starving poor in Ireland and Scotland and donate whatever they could afford. The event had been decreed through what was called a Queen's Letter, where Queen Victoria, as monarch and head of the Church of England, lent official recognition, legitimacy and publicity for the day. On an aside, Victoria herself did not actually agree with this concept because she felt it implied that the famine had been created by a vengeful God if people were praying for it to end. While she considered it blasphemous, she was correcting that it reinforced a very dangerous message that God was punishing the sinful Irish through famine, something that would create major problems down the line and that I will return to. Now regardless of Queen Victoria's private reservations about this message, on the day itself, March 24th, 1847, clerics read sermons to assemble congregations to hammer home this message that the famine was a result of a vengeful God. For example, in the Chapel Royal in the Palace of St. James, the royal family listened to the Bishop of London parallel the Irish to the biblical people of Nineveh who lived in sin and idolatry. Across London in St. Paul's, the celebrant was far more direct. He saw Ireland's sin arising from the want of industry. Other bishops saw the sin originating elsewhere. For example, in Cambridge, the Dean of Trinity Church agreed with Edward Nangle in Ackle Island, telling his congregants the sin lay in the British government supporting the Catholic seminaries in Ireland in 1845. While this message reinforced a very dangerous idea that the famine was the wrath of God and therefore to some extent inevitable, the reaction across England in March 1847 was overwhelming. In total, over £170,000 was raised through the day of general fast and humiliation. Given this is worth somewhere in the region of £17 million today, it was a very impressive feat. Many of the donations were not given by the rich and powerful, but from people who were struggling themselves. 
Perhaps the most generous acts of solidarity were from those who gave the least but could not afford even these small donations. For example, a fast by the women in the Pentonville Home for Penitent Females, an institution similar to a Magdalene laundry, which claimed its purpose was to save these women who vanity, idleness and treachery of men had led astray, raised one pound and one shilling and this was then sent to Ireland. Meanwhile, prisoners on board the Warrior, an old warship converted into a floating prison, docked at Woolwich in London, also collected 17 shillings after hearing about the situation in Ireland. While there was an enormous outpouring of generosity from people across Britain, particularly in the early half of 1847, it was by no means limited to the United Kingdom. As early as the winter of 1845, major collections had been organised as far away as India in an initiative started by soldiers in the British Army, but which received support from all across Indian society, including the very poor. Massive sums of money were also raised in the USA. In early 1847, the wealthy New York merchant, Mindert Van Schock, organised a relief committee in New York. This group, which would go on to coordinate relief efforts across the USA, collected huge sums of money for famine relief in Ireland. Van Schock's committee tended to buy food in the USA and then ship that to Ireland, given food prices in the USA were far cheaper than those in Europe at the time. In less than two months, they raised over $100,000. The pace of donations, which could be expected to fall off, began to drop sharply in the summer of 1847, when large numbers of famine emigrants began to appear in the streets of US cities, placing increased strain on those cities. But in total, this committee raised $170,000. How much was sent back in the form of remittances? That's money sent by individual Irish emigrants to their family or friends back home is unknown. Mindert Van Schock estimated this may have been in excess of $1 million. The accuracy of this figure is highly questionable given there's simply no way anyone could know. But sadly, it has to be acknowledged, many of these remittances, having been posted by private mail, may never have reached their intended recipients. Until 1847, all mail from the USA was paid on delivery rather than on postage and given the poor in Ireland could scarcely afford food, they weren't going to be paying for letters. Perhaps the most incredible donations to come from the USA were again those who had the least to give. These included an incredible donation from a congregation of slaves in Richmond, Virginia and also the more famous donations of $170 from the Choctaw tribe and over $200 from the Cherokee tribe. These are all the more remarkable given both these groups had probably very negative experiences at the hands of Irish Americans either as slaves or for the Native Americans in the Trail of Tears. While 1847 witnessed remarkable expressions of solidarity from across the world, the story of charity and generosity during the Great Famine would not last through the later years of the Great Hunger. A combination of extremely dangerous ideas and economic recession would see the major relief operations come to an end in 1848, despite the fact that the situation in Ireland, as we saw in the last episode, remained dire. While support for charities was at its height in the first half of Black 47, the late summer of that year saw the mood in England in particular give way to a more hostile attitude towards Ireland. This was for several reasons. Firstly, a general election took place across the United Kingdom, including Ireland, that summer. 
The election took place to the backdrop of two years of famine, but also the funeral of Daniel O'Connell, the most famous Irish nationalist of the age. These factors combined to see candidates who favoured a repeal of the Act of Union, that is increased but not full independence from Britain, sweep the boards in Ireland. Unfortunately, in England, this was interpreted as ingratitude on the part of the Irish for the aid given by the British public in the previous months. Now, this was further compounded by a serious economic downturn in England at the time, leading towards a hardening of general attitudes towards giving charity to Ireland. This hardening of attitudes was also facilitated by the way famine relief had been presented to the British public. The highly successful day of national fast in March had engendered the idea that ultimately the Irish themselves were to blame for the famine, that God was angry at their sinful ways and therefore, by extension, there was little that ultimately could be done. There was almost no examination of the role or responsibility of the British government. This toxic attitude was cemented by rising racism in England as well. Through the summer of 1847, racism against Irish people in general was rapidly increasing in Britain, but also the USA, as a result of immigration. That summer saw huge numbers of poor Irish famine refugees arriving in major ports in both countries. The impoverished and destitute have long made good targets for those seeking simple solutions to wider societal problems, and newspapers and politicians alike were treating the Irish as scapegoats rather than giving them the support they needed. This hostile atmosphere found currency further up the power structure in British society where some influential figures had long been opposed to generosity and aid on a large scale in general. Strange as it sounds, there were those around the government who believed in a policy of minimal intervention, including when it came to charity. This can be summed up in the brutal words of the highly influential James Wilson, the founder of The Economist magazine, quoted before in this podcast when he said, it is no man's business to provide for another. Such attitudes also extended through the corridors of power. The Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Earl of Clarendon, summarised the position of the very influential Troika in the British government of Charles Wood, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Grey, the Home Secretary, and Charles Trevelyan, the most powerful civil servant in the Treasury, as, and I quote, the right thing to do was to do nothing. And while these individuals gave modest contributions, these attitudes that they expounded did not encourage ordinary English people to give generously. This general environment did not bode well when another public appeal was organised later in 1847, again headed up by a public appeal in the form of a letter from Queen Victoria. The funds of the British Relief Association were depleted by this point and would not last another year if they were not topped up. On this occasion, the concept of another day of prayer and fasting for Ireland was lambasted by the British press. While there had been articles questioning the first day of appeal, the second one was attacked head-on. The Times in the days and weeks preceding the collection harangued its readers not to give money. As early as August the 9th, they carried an article under the title So There's to be another collection for Ireland, which attacked every aspect of the proposed collection, even including veiled criticisms of Queen Victoria herself. These attacks were extremely effective. The second appeal, taking place on Sunday, October the 16th, 1847, raised only £30,000, around one-sixth of what had been raised earlier in the year. The Economist magazine was almost jubilant. On October the 16th, the day of the collection, happy that it was going to be met with, in their words, and I quote, a cold repulsive response, they celebrated the fact. They proclaimed, Charity now seems exhausted. 
and if relief cannot be legally obtained by the Irish, there is a probability that in spite of, not in consequence of, all the exertions of government, many of them will yet be starved. This matter-of-fact statement that Irish people would starve was very soon going to become a reality. After the failed appeal, the British Relief Association was left with a very short life expectancy. They had spent £500,000 in the first nine months of 1847, and now by October they had only £190,000, which included the £30,000 raised in the second appeal. Inevitably, by July of 1848, having run out of money, the British Relief Association closed their operation, although Count Streletsky would continue in Ireland in a much diminished role until 1849. Some months later, the Society of Friends, the Quakers, followed suit closing their operation for a combination of reasons, including a lack of money and the fact that their agents were completely burnt out. While charities had stepped into the breach, they were, by and large, only patching up for the failed government strategy. Ultimately, they could never have stopped the famine. Despite the large sums of money they raised, the overall charitable donations were considerably less than the programmes funded by the British government, which were, in themselves, as we have seen, completely inadequate. Nevertheless, this should not detract from the remarkable efforts of the individuals involved. At the time, and indeed since, few have acknowledged the role played by these people. Powell Streletsky, Matthew Higgins, Asenath Nicholson and so many others saved thousands of lives and gained nothing for it. While the story of the Great Famine is unquestionably one of sorrow, their inspirational actions should never be forgotten. In the next episode, we will be continuing the story through the later years of the Great Famine, which brings us on to the 1848 Rebellion. In the meantime, you can find lots of shows from my new series of This Week in Irish History that's available at This Week in Irish History wherever you listen to podcasts. So until next time, Sloan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 